New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Patrick Esposito. He's the CEO of Initiative Labs and the president of Acme General Corp. He's also the author of The Structure of Success. Today, we'll be discussing his book and some of the things that readers can expect to take away to apply to their own lives. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Gabriella, thanks so much for having me. Your book is very detailed and offers a lot of guidance for entrepreneurs of small and mid-sized businesses about how to move forward. And it's a very clear, it's full of charts and tables, and each chapter has tools to help the reader check in to see if they've internalized what was being discussed and provides questions that allow readers to explore more deeply. It's a high utility book that people can put into their shelves and use as an ongoing resource. So I'm not going to walk through the steps and the tables because they're there and done really well. So instead, what I'd like to do is dive into the thing that drives people to pick up the book in the first place, and that's failure. You've written a book about success because people are worried about failure. And you mentioned this worry. People who launch businesses, they're not wrong to be worried about failure, are they? It's funny, as I was writing the book and going through the editorial process, I wanted to talk about failure first, because I tend to be a worrier, although I've made myself into a productive worrier, right, rather than just a worrier. But failure is the thing we all want to avoid. And of course, anybody who's started or is running a small business, they're aware of the statistics where up to 70% of small businesses fail within their first five years of operation. And sadly, the the numbers don't get any better with time. You'd think we could internalize some of the lessons that have led others to fail, but for whatever reason, we don't, right? And maybe it's because as entrepreneurial types, we're, we're wired to take risks. We're wired to try to pursue growth. But a little bit of studying of the reasons for failure and how to avoid them can really set your business up for, for better success. Right. And, and people don't like to discuss failure. Certainly entrepreneurs may be worried about it, but they're not saying, hey, I'm concerned about failure. Let's talk about how I'm worried about failure. That's not everything's always OK at the shop. Really, that's kind of the way people approach it, because just like being desperate when job hunting, you don't want to be desperate as a business. People don't like doing business with desperate people. and It's unsettling. But what you did is you looked at it and you sort of reverse engineered what the most common causes of failure were. And then you set things up around these ways to block and tackle and avoid these things. But those common causes of failure, what were they? Can you outline them for listeners? Yeah. So anyone who has, I guess, operated a business for any period of time, you probably you have some some notions because of the things that you saw that either led a business you operated to a failure, led a friend's business to failure or or have you on potentially the verge of failure. And so what I did with with this book and with the activities we conducted in support of it were to take sort of some of the evidence that I had collected in 20 plus years of starting and, and leading and advising small and medium sized businesses, and then decided to do some research with 100 experts in a variety of fields in those small to medium sized business. And the five causes that came out of that survey were disputes between co-owners, which is not 
something that should surprise anyone. It's much like any relationship. Uh, a lot of relationships, a lot of marriages fail, a lot of business relationships or, or business marriages fail. The other reason is a failure to pivot the business model. So many of us start with a very clear notion of what our business is meant to be. And what we may find is that the market may or may not agree with that vision. And if we don't listen for those signals to make a change, we can obviously run into some pretty significant problems. The third area is the failure to execute on a merger acquisition or sale of the business. If we think we understand what the next version of the business looks like, be it a, a merger or a sale or, or us acquiring another organization, we can get so fixated on that future that we forget to operate the business of today. And that has led, unfortunately, many businesses to falter. The fourth and fifth areas, a lack of internal infrastructure. Those of us who start businesses tend to be used to operating on a shoestring. So maybe we aren't used to spending money. We're more interested in driving the top line, the bottom line and delivering for customers and creating great livelihoods for our team members. But we may not be thinking about the infrastructure that's needed to support that growth. And so we may be a little short at times on setting up that foundation, whether it's technology or whether it's other types of infrastructure, and that can cause problems. And the last one is one that probably won't surprise a lot of people, but is one of the ones that Again, we don't like to talk about, we don't like to think about, but it's a failure to respond to difficulties or disasters. And if you've led a business through the Great Recession, have led it through the deepest parts of the COVID-19 pandemic, you probably weren't prepared for some of the things you saw, whether it be the impact on your business or the impact it had on team members or clients and customers. You can't be prepared for everything. But if you think about some of the things that could impact your business, if you have plans in place on how to deal with some of those, you can sometimes end up putting your business into a position where it won't be as likely to fail if problems come up. Right. Okay. I want to dive in a bit sort of item by item. Yes. Disputes between co-owners. And a lot of entrepreneurs that I've found really don't like thinking about how things might go south. I have some litigator friends who tell me a lot of business grief could be solved if people address the rules of their business relationship before they got started. And I've asked people why they aren't doing it. It really seems that it's hard, but I kind of say, well, gee whiz, if it's hard when you're happy, how do you think it'll be when you're not with this person? <laughs> so what advice do you have for people who are going to go into business with someone else? What types of agreements or documents should they put into place? And when should they put them in place? When should they have that uncomfortable conversation? Yeah. So, I mean, look, your litigator friends are quite right. And they're the ones who deal with fallout in, in many circumstances of these business relationships that don't have the right documents to govern how disputes are handled or, or, or how breakups are handled. And yeah, Look, for most individuals who start a business, they're not looking to spend a significant sum of money on corporate lawyers to, if it's an LLC, put together a really strong LLC operating agreement, or if it's a corporation, uh, do much past the sort of very basic articles. Right, here are the off-the-shelf yeah. S-corp docs, yeah. you know, set it up, do your meetings as, you know, ABC That's, Corporation. Yeah. That's exactly right. What does Google have for me to download, or, or what did the incorporator who I had file things in the state of Delaware? 
Delaware provide to me? And so, so in a corporate structure, they, they don't have a shareholder agreement. And too often you, you start moving forward with a business, you and your business partners are, are heads down on trying to increase revenue, deliver on your sales, grind out a margin, hire the right people, figure out where your business is going. And all of a sudden you're two to three years into this, and you've got a two-page document that basically says, hey, this is this is how our business is going to be operated. But it doesn't solve for those problems. Like somebody decides this is not what they want to be doing. Mm-hmm. How do they exit? How do you value their share if they say, I want to exit, but I also want to get paid to exit? And right. so to your point, th- there is, in my opinion, the perfect time. The perfect time is you think about all this before, but the reality of most folks starting a business is they're anxious to get the business moving before they want to spend a lot of money on attorneys. So one of the things that I like to sort of recommend to folks is if your business is still in existence in the first year, 20% of businesses fail in the first year, 70% fail by the 10th year, 50% fail by the by the fifth year. If you're still in existence on your one-year anniversary, Take a look and see if maybe you should develop those more detailed documents that have a proper governance structure where you can have third-party voices somehow involved in your conversations with your partners as you set strategic directions. Put those clauses in to the agreement that talk about how to exit, talk about valuation on exit. And also one of the things that a lot of folks tend to shy away from is if you have individuals who own an organization... What happens if their marriage or domestic partnership or or other type of scenario ends up splitting up? Because in a lot of states, you can end up with folks having shares in an organization that there was never an intention to have shares in. Oh, wow. End up with with a whole nother set of questions around what happens. Surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And that's one of the things that I think makes folks very uncomfortable because not only are you having this conversation with your business partners that you may or may not be comfortable with around what happens if this doesn't work out, you separately have those business partners having a conversation with their spouses or or domestic partners or otherwise and saying, hey, we need to have a conversation. I actually even need you to sign a document consenting to the terms that discuss what happens if we split up. And so there's, there's lawyers making a perfect world which is something like that. But the reality to your point is you may or may not want to go through all those conversations, but you definitely should have some of them to figure out and put in writing how you're going to handle this. Because look, sometimes it may not be about breaking up. It may be about a co-founder meeting their untimely demise. And right. Somebody gets hit by a bus. What do you do? Yeah. Somebody gets hit by a bus and what do you do and how do you determine what should happen with that share of the business, especially in circumstances where you have two individuals who are very active and all of a sudden, maybe that one of the two active members is gone. You need to have some some clear ways legally. And then folks can also get to the point of, do you have things like e-person insurance or insurance funded by sell agreements to help manage some of the exit of shares? And so at the end of the day, to your point, if you're not having these conversations up, up front, when you do need to have them, they're going to be a lot more painful, a lot more time consuming and distract you from actually from running the business. business. Yep. Okay. Failure to pivot. This is a big one. 
And because people can fail because they don't know that they need to pivot and they can also fail to pivot because they don't know how to execute the pivot. So there's both the awareness and then there's the doing of it. What do business owners need to do in order to be aware of the larger landscape shifts before it's too late? So a lot of individuals who are wired to start their own businesses, we are idea people, we are connectors, we are conversationalists, uh, we are salespeople. One of the things that I find often ends up being difficult to have folks who are hard charging and in reality, either idea people or networkers or both is to make sure to sort of listen. And I, and, and I say that because it sounds funny, right? Everybody says listening is one of the most important things in life. Listening is definitely one of the most important things in business. And I've personally lived the journey of, of a couple pivots. First startup out of the gate, we were a consultancy that wanted to be a technology company. We had a great idea from for some software, leveraging the consulting work we were doing. We were going to build an environmental commodity management platform to help companies manage their environmental commodities, both negative from an emission standpoint and positive from a creation of environmental credits. This was, by the way, 2004. So now, 20 years later, great business. Then, little too out in the future. And what right. we found was the market wasn't there. So you've spent some money, you've ended up learning some valuable lessons, but if you keep plowing forward with that model, you're definitely going to die. So what we found was we had customers who were in this market where they wanted real-time um, sensor data on their emissions. And where we ended up was actually creating a, a middleware platform and an early Internet of Things platform to help with two-way communication with sensing actuating devices. There was nothing like what we thought we were, we were, we were going to be doing as business. But how did we get there? It's because we listened listen to our team members who were focused on selling and on delivering to customers and to our customers who were focused on telling us what they actually wanted to spend money on. And it sounds so simple. Listen to your team, listen to your customers, listen to the people you'd like to be customers. Because often if what you're really passionate about is a broad space, but not a specific opportunity, you can be very happy with creating a very successful business if you simply listen enough and then assess that data you're getting to understand how to make that move, be it a minor adjustment or, or a major pivot. Well, and related to listening, I'm sure this is going to come in in this one as well, which is failure to execute a merger, sale, acquisition, or sale of the business. It seems like it speaks to external factors. Again, you've got these these things that you need somebody else to participate with you in one way or another. So it might not be 100% in the control of the entrepreneur. Now, I'm sure you have some tips around this topic. You mentioned at the top, the need to keep going is a current going concern. So if I'm a business and I really would like to exit through a sale, right. merger, right. or acquisition, I bootstrapped this thing. It's a great thing. I really would like to have my exit. What should I be doing and what should I not be doing? Well, it's, it's actually interesting. So having been there and been through what I'll characterize as a, as a couple of market consolidations in some companies that I helped to found and lead that one Internet of Things software company, another was a non-pneumatic or, or airless tire company, both 
starting to see large companies come mm-hmm. into space. And in the software, it was Cisco, it was Microsoft. It was the types of companies that as a small business should scare you. In the non-pneumatic wireless tire, it was Michelin, it was Bridgestone, it was the major tire producers. And to your point, everybody kept telling us that knew what they were doing. They said, don't focus on the exit focus on partnerships and sales. And that's 100% because you're going to find that pathway to an exit largely on the basis of the partnerships you have and maintain that you find companies who need your technology for their own technologies to serve that market space. You've got some natural acquirers built in. You focus on the sales. At the end of the day, the people will come to buy your business. So to your point, while it is very much a grind, and in many times you can say, gosh, (laughs) I feel like we're really missing the optimal market window because we should just go find a banker and try to sell this. Look, you find a banker, you sign them up. They're going to tell you the same thing. (laughs) We can go try to sell this, but the people who are going to sell it are the people who need you to help them seize the market opportunity that they want around your space. So, I mean, as as hard as it is to say, don't focus on the exit, it's actually right. Well, so one, so just to clarify, should when I'm making a decision, maybe there's a stretch investment, which I think would be really great and very appealing for an acquisition, but it's going to stretch my business and make it maybe hard for me to make my numbers. Should I not make, should I, should I just really double down what I do well and focus on those partnerships and sales as is? Or should I try to do that growth thing? Because I think it'll make me look more appealing. So obviously that's to an extent, it's it's definitely going to differ a little bit by market. Mm-hmm. If it's a market where it's a really fast moving market with lots of consolidation, and you think that two parts together as a single purchase for an acquirer may be more appealing than two parts separately, that, that can make a lot of sense. What, what I usually advise companies is if a year from now, two years from now, you're still operating on your own, if this deal doesn't make sense, it's going to be very high risk. If you're right. basically creating the tie-up and the merger mainly to make your business more appealing for acquisition, and it's not going to make your business drive top line and or bottom line growth, I think you really have to ask yourself, are we sure the acquisition is going to happen? And are we sure that's our only path? Because to your point about operating as a as a going concern, a lot of businesses that want to be acquired do not end up getting acquired on the timeline they envisioned. So to your point- <laughs> Quite uh, quite so in my experience. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right, right. Yeah, so, yeah. It's one of those things where it's a very hard thing to do, but sometimes you will find an appealing acquisition opportunity that you need to turn away from. And and look, one of the things you need to do both for your business and for the benefit of the other business is figure out as soon as possible if you really want to do a deal rather than dance around uh, wasting a lot of time and resources because you, you can see organizations sort of assess an opportunity to death. And this could have been a great partner for you at some point, but odds are pretty good if you end up not deciding to merge, there will be some relationship damage and honestly, some lost opportunity costs for each business. Of course, of course. So failure, failure to build infrastructure for scale. What is scaling infrastructure? Like what, what is that manpower? Is that capital expenditures? When you're thinking about building infrastructure for scale, what are the things people should be thinking about? 
Yes, I would say the answer to the question is it's definitely both. There are capital investments, there's human investments, there's there's non-capital, non-human investments. One of the things that I'm very guilty of, as a lot of folks who start businesses are, is wearing too many hats. And that obviously has a cost both for you as a human, likely for your family and friends, as as well as for your business. So right. Part of what I try to tell folks who are leading and wearing a lot of hats is part of the infrastructure is is human. And part of that is really doing a little bit of an assessment of yourself and saying, what do I do best? But more importantly, what do I do best in the context of this business, both where it is today and where it wants to go? I've never been a natural salesperson, so I unfortunately generally hobble through and lead a lot of the sales activities. But I always know that I need to find someone to lead sales. Um, But finding someone who can lead sales, especially in the early stages, when you're still trying to figure out exactly what Mm -hmm. the real product and service mix for scaling looks like, that can be hard and requires a lot of discipline. And to your point around capital investments, sometimes it's office space. Sometimes it's software tools to share knowledge. And sometimes it's making the investments to be physically present, even though we're in an era where physical presence is not as important. It's not as as, uh, expected, but one could argue it's just as important as it ever was. Exactly. That's exactly right. Because that human, the, the social engagement aspect that often promotes both the ability to close a transaction of some type, whether it's a sale or whether it's a merger and acquisition, or whether it is simply building relationships to partner together to jointly pursue sales, that face-to-face element does have value. And as we've seen the ability to conduct business through web meetings, and we've also seen, frankly, the cost of airfare, the cost of sales grow, I think folks are often concerned about making that expenditure. So to your point, I tend to sort of lump it into three categories. There's human costs, there's capital costs, and there's other costs. And I'm very cost sensitive in general. So I I think a lot of entrepreneurs are. I I just, I think that this is, (laughs) it's part of it, I think. That's right. Because you view as somebody leading a business, you view every dollar that gets created, the dollars that get spent, generally don't accrue to your bottom line, to the bottom line of your family or to the bottom line opportunity for bonuses for your team members or to return capital to your investors. And so every dollar that comes in, you're scrutinizing how it goes out in a way that in larger organizations, not everyone is is doing that. Well, and then the last one, failure to respond to disaster or difficulty. And how should you be using your management team to best advantage during disaster or difficulty? I think another tendency of entrepreneurs is to, in times of threat, pull things in rather Mm -hmm. than hand them out. Absolutely. When things start to go bad, you hunker down and you think, I can grind my way out of this. Or a small number of this who started this, we can figure out the pathway to get out of it. But look, you're you're exactly right about that. What's interesting is in banking and financial services, there's a hard requirement for documented study of disasters, what the impacts will be, what your plans are. And there's even a requirement to sort of test those plans and make sure that they can play out. Well, that's too much for most businesses. But that concept of saying, let's 
write down and just kind of document if this problem occurs, what are the steps you're going to take? Your whole approach is very thoughtful. And this is a bit outside the context of the book, but I'd love to get your take because a lot of jobs these days talk about wanting people to thrive in ambiguity, which often (laughs) translates to little or no direction, operating with incomplete information, if any. Now, I would almost say your approach is anti-ambiguity. And (laughs) do you think that if someone is working in a company where ambiguity is the order of business, does that mean that it started to wobble? Is that a sign of an organizational problem? I'm interested in your take on that. Yeah. So what I will say is, as you as you probably were, were sort of trending toward, which is we all deal better with certainty. I will tell you that in the last 20 plus years that I've been operating businesses, I've never not felt like there was a lot of ambiguity. Ambiguity can be useful. There are all yeah. sorts of things, but I think that if we right. the, the do it and if I, I'll know if I like it kind of way of business seems yeah. seems wasteful. Of, of energy, effort, ambiguity without communication and support is it's not literally flying solo. It's it's running through a minefield. That's exactly right. And you, you said a word there that I think is critically important, and that's communications. And I, I think someone once said to me that they were, they were looking at at someone's career trajectory and they said that person operated really well when they had a checklist. But now that they're in a position where they are required to lead and try to synthesize information and make decisions and take action, that's hard because there's no checklist they can operate from of what success looks like beyond revenue growth and profitability. And and I think that's a very good point. So while I tend to advocate a fairly disciplined approach, part of the reason for the disciplined approach is the fact that there is so much ambiguity in the world. Right. And if we wait to have perfect information or we overstudy or overanalyze or in in many circumstances just spend too much time preparing, we don't spend enough time acting. And so part of the strategy is to get quick signals so that one, you develop a plan based upon the signals you have. If you don't have enough data, you try to get data you can as fast as possible. And you you continue to to move forward because at the end of the day, standing in place is not an option for very many folks, right? And so being comfortable with ambiguity and being comfortable with honestly making decisions in the absence of full information, but in the context of the best information you have, to me is, 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 really part of sort of what what sort of I encourage and what I believe to be critical because you can definitely see folks who are very gifted, very talented, get very focused on trying to get all the data to make a decision. And that 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 ultimately leads to paralysis by analysis. It's it's not going to work for for small organizations. And in most circumstances, it doesn't work for large organizations. And part of what the realization around ambiguity, I think, is that and and I have this conversation with my with my kids who are who are teenagers, which is the world is moving, everything is moving at a far faster pace for them than it did for me. And when they're in their work 
environment, things will be moving even more quickly. We can see sentiment change. We can see right. uh, people's interest in, in a certain app or in a certain fashion line. But it demands, media. though, it demands yeah. you lean into that management team. It demands people be empowered because to have somebody operate in ambiguity without the ability to make decisions, like without the ability to just do what they think is right without the ability to make that decision without clarification, sign off, check. We are in an era of ambiguity. And mm-hmm. yet some of the leadership is used to a slower thing. And so maybe they want to be looped in and maybe that isn't realistic. You have to and, empower and, people to to go, just go. You, you have to empower people to go and you've got to assess. You've also got to make decisions. You've got to you, you, and you've got to prioritize what you're going to plan and implement. And the worst thing most businesses can do is spend way too much time assessing <laughs> or, or way too much time deciding. That's what, that's what happens if you put the strategist on the CEO chair. <laughs> they, exactly. they, haven't, they haven't had to pull the trigger ever. And, exactly. And they can't. They don't want to. Or you end up with people who try to fire off way too many changes, right, at once. And that can also be quite dangerous. So it really yeah. is this disciplined approach to say, look, we may be in the middle of making a change, but we need to make sure that as we're making that change, implementing that, that we're listening for what comes next, or if there's minor tweaks that need to be made to this approach, because sometimes you can be very focused on navigating to a place that market signals will tell you doesn't. I'll I'll give you an example. So the, the first startup I did, we were doing environmental commodity management software. We started moving into tools for software developers to integrate sensor and actuator data into applications they were building. And we raised some venture money, thought this was going exceptionally well. The reality is it was great from a messaging standpoint, but not as great from a sales or use standpoint. And what we what we did was we listened to the feedback from the marketplace, which was software developers at that point. And it was it was a different era, 2005, six, seven, eight, nine. They wanted to code their own things. Right, but people right. who weren't software developers were very comfortable with the idea of having configurable middleware that they could just click, 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 set it up and go. And again, if we had not been comfortable with making the change from environmental commodity management tools to sensor-based software development tools to Internet of Things middleware, that that company would have flamed out. And right. part of what we had to do was was be comfortable with the signals we were getting, even though it was imperfect information and having a bias for action rather than a bias for analysis. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And just being comfortable with the fact that you've got to get out there. And to your point, is there some waste in that process? Probably. But is there actually less waste than just sitting back and studying something to death? Probably. And do you generally end up with a better outcome by moving? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. I really appreciate it. Gabriella, thank you so much. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.